This is Hooks and Runs, a podcast about baseball, music, and culture. I am Craig, and of course with me, as always, is Eric. Hey, how y'all doing? And that Sports Illustrated writer from the opening is Tom Verducci. He wrote a story January 7th titled, Red Sox Face Same Exhaustive Investigation for Sign Stealing as the Astros. And that clip was way back in Episode 8 when the Red Sox report came out. Sign stealing is back in the news. Eric had an exchange with the Athletics' Ken Rosenthal on Twitter. And we're going to talk about all that in Chapter 2 around the corner. But first, we have a fascinating guest to kick off this episode, Bill Rogan. His introduction alone could take up most of our time, so I'm just going to hit some high points. Rogan is an author, broadcaster, announcer, journalist, and huge baseball fan. He currently works in the Colorado Rockies ticket office, but he's closely affiliated with the independent Pecos League. In 2019, he made his managerial debut for the Tucson Saguaros of the Pecos League. He wrote a book about that experience called Life Ain't the Same in the Pecos League. A rookie manager navigates baseball's most notorious independent league. It was released earlier this year, stories about that experience in the Pecos League. He signed on to manage the Santa Fe Fuego of the same league in 2021. Bill Rogan, welcome to Hooks and Runs. Very nice to be with you, Craig and Eric. Thank you. Well, thank you for being here. Before we get too far into the interview, in case some listeners are not really familiar what an independent league is, tell us how how the Pecos League operates and how it fits into professional baseball. Well, major league teams have their affiliated minor league teams, and all those players belong to that major league team. Uh, For instance, the Colorado Rockies, their AAA team is Albuquerque, and they have a team in Hartford, Connecticut, in AA. So those players belong to the Rockies. Independent baseball is just as it sounds. Teams, professional teams across the country in different leagues, they're no affiliation with major league baseball. These guys play for that team in whatever league. And their goal is to get to affiliated baseball and get to the major leagues. That's the holy grail. And of all the independent leagues, you have your Frontier League, Atlantic League, and whatnot. But the lowest rung of professional baseball is the Pecos League. And that's where I managed last year uh, for the Tucson Suaros. And it was quite an experience. Well, it was. We could tell from the book. One of the things in the book I was fascinated by were the ballparks in the Pecos League. It seems like some of them were, were quite run down. Some of them seemed almost unplayable. Some of them you shared the urinal with the players. <laughs> yeah, shared the urinal. <laughs> some of them were quite old. You didn't go to Garden City, but I looked up that. That's Garden City, Kansas, and that park is uh, 100 years old this year. It's the Venway Park of the Pecos League, I guess. What, what was that like trying to deal with all those crazy ballparks? It was fun. I'm a ballpark guy. I, I'm fascinated by ballparks because it's a community asset and people flock to the ballparks year after year after year. And when those ballparks disappear, you know, people are very nostalgic about it because memories are built there. And so I I enjoy ballparks. And to me, there's no such thing as a really ugly ballpark. You know, I'd rather watch a game in an ugly ballpark than not watch a game. Uh, But there were some rundown parks in the Pecos League. Uh, Probably the worst was California City in the middle of the Mojave Desert. It's unbearably hot and dusty. And the field was, I mean, there was just a ramshackle thrown together ballpark. You know, it's a town of 14,000 people. They didn't support their team very well. But the unique thing about it is you can't take batting practice there unless you want to retrieve the baseballs amongst rattlesnakes in right field and right center field if you hit a ball out. And it's short. The, The distances are short. So balls are going over there all the time. And the opposing manager, or I should say the manager from the previous year, a guy named David Peterson, told me 
if you take batting practice there, you're going to have to track down the balls and fight rattlesnakes for them. Wow. So I said, no, thank you for that. Yeah. So I got a bunch of tennis balls, and we actually took batting practice with tennis balls, and nobody hit them out, so we didn't have to chase tennis balls uh, and compete with rattlesnakes. Well, I was looking at some of the ballparks online and the uh, a website. I don't know if it's an official one or the city website, but for California City, it builds the ballpark as the field in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> That would, be accurate. <laughs> that would be accurate. That would be very accurate. Now you're going to be and a couple of other ahead. fields. Sam Lynn Ballpark was built in 1941. Uh, for many years, it was a Dodgers affiliate in the California League, and they they left the California League, uh, parted ways with Bakersfield. So the independent Pecos League moved in in 2017, and the ballpark is just falling apart basically. Mm-hmm. And the field was crummy. The dugouts are awful. It's the most polluted city in California. It was just a miserable place. And our team always melted down there. So I don't have any fond memories of Sam Lynn Ballpark. (laughs) You're going to be the manager for Santa Fe next year. They play at Fort Marcy Ballpark. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. I read on that ballpark, it's 355 to center field. So how do you plan to get pitchers to come to Santa Fe next year for you? Under gunpoint. That's the best way. Now, right field is 285. Wow. Center field is 355. And some ballparks, you know, down the line, it may be short, but then it bows out. At Fort Marcy, it cuts right across. And it's not a big fence. It's not like you have to navigate a 30-foot fence to hit one out. It's just a 7- or 8-foot fence. And get this. 7,200 feet altitude. Oh, that's even better. So, so yeah. I'm, so if, games I'm, if, there I'm scouting, last... if I'm scouting pitchers, I'm definitely going to have somebody at this ballpark to find a pitcher that does somewhat yeah. relatively well there. <laughs> that's a good point. From the past, I mean, games average like 22 runs a game there. Some of the scores are ridiculous. But pitchers who have pitched well there at Fort Marcy Ballpark have moved up the food chain. So if you're not afraid and you can pitch, and one of the strategies I'm going to use is, to me, I've played baseball my whole life, the toughest pitch to hit is a good changeup. You get way out in front of it, and you either pop it up or you miss it or you even just tap it into the ground. I'm looking for pitchers who have great changeups. And actually, one of the guys I have uh, who's going to pitch for me this year, he's going to pitch for me next year, has a terrific changeup. And I think that's the kind of guy who can be successful. But we have to do something to try to figure out how to keep balls from flying over the fence there. But it'll be a fun challenge. I mean, it's maybe America's craziest ballpark. That's I would, for sure. I think so, yeah. I mean, normally a professional ballpark is going to be around 400 to center, and you're at 355, plus you're a mile and a half up. That's going to be – Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's not good. I might take – seriously, I might do this. Don't tell anybody. But I was thinking the first <laughs> inning – Putting, giving the umpires balls that have been frozen. Freeze them like a hockey puck. They freeze hockey pucks so they don't bounce. If you freeze a baseball, they don't go quite as far. And for the first maybe two or three baseballs, I'll give the umpire, they'll be frozen ones. So the top of the first inning, we might have a little advantage. Could be. Uh, but, but don't tell anyone that. Until they catch on to you. And then, <laughs> and then it seemed like there was issues with the high desert ballpark. That was a former California League park that had been grassed over for soccer. So you yes, didn't, you didn't was, even have sliding areas. No, it was the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. It used to be the jewel of the California League. They would have the all-star game there frequently in Adelanto, California. Again, it's in the desert. It's about an hour and a half south of California City. And it was a beautiful ballpark at one time. But they brought a soccer team in there 
guys who own the stadium and the soccer team didn't really care about baseball. And they just put grass over the entire field. The only dirt part that was playable was home plate was dirt. And they had a portable mound they would bring out there. So you'd have guys sliding into second base and they're, they're catching their knees and, and the, the grass, bad hops everywhere. If you have a rough infield, you can smooth out uneven, rough dirt. You can't smooth out lumpy grass. And that's what it was. And there were bad hops galore. The field was not, or the stadium was not maintained. There was garbage everywhere. The bat rack was coming off the wall. That's really a shame because uh, it, it seats about 6,000 people. And they didn't draw that well in the California League. I guess that's why they lost the team. But, man, it's really a nice park looking at pictures on the Internet. Yeah, when it was in its heyday, it was a very nice park. And they didn't draw very well because people don't want to go to a, a garbage-infested place and watch baseball on a right. soccer field. So I can't blame them. But I remember one game we were playing there. We were getting our heads kicked in. And a guy on the third base side, a heckler. And you can hear hecklers in small crowds. Sure. He kept yelling, hey, coach, your team sucks. (laughs) I was ignoring him, but he was right because we were pretty bad that night. (laughs) I was amazed reading the book how you were always able to find players. You had injuries. Players would quit or move on or you'd make trades that left you with a hole somewhere. And you seem to there seems to be this built in network of people who could get you in touch or you would get in touch with with players who wanted to come play in the Pecos League. Uh, How difficult is it really, though, to maintain a functioning roster in the Pecos League? It can be tough because you may like I had a catcher quit. You know, we had to fill that spot. But lo and behold, there was a catcher released from California City who lived in Tucson. So he called me up and boom, like a day later, I had a new catcher. I also had a guy, uh, a player personnel guy named J.D. Grotti, and he managed in the Pecos League before. He actually managed Tucson in 2016 to the best record in league history, and he won a championship. So he was helping me get players. He lives in Colorado Springs, so we struck up a friendship. And So sometimes I'd call him and say, hey, I need a pitcher or I need another outfielder, and he was on the case. And then we had tryout camps, and I kept the numbers of all these guys. And the guys who didn't make the team, I told them, stay in shape. You know, find an adult league team to play on or play somewhere, but stay in shape. You never know when you'll get a call. And if it's from me, great, but it may be from somebody else, too, because, you know, right. a lot of the managers go to these tryouts. So there is a network of players you can uh, draw from. But I was always, every morning, I'd be on the computer just looking up, seeing if I could find players. Somebody that would play. So a lot of your players, yeah. you, you, there, you had our age rule. A lot of your players are, are guys that were playing in, in affiliated ball and released or, or never drafted, or what's the main source of players in the Pecos League? Players who get a lot of college players, uh, seniors who didn't get drafted and are looking for a place to play. Then you have guys who are released from other independent leagues and they're looking for a place to play if they want to continue their career. And you have guys who are released from major league affiliated teams who feel they still have something in the tank and want to keep going. Uh, the nice thing about the Pecos League, I mean, it's a hard league. There's, there's very little amenities. There's not a big clubhouse spread after every game. Uh, a lot of the road places didn't even have clubhouses for us to shower up. Two to, uh, four guys to a room, so it would be two guys to a bed. And uh, fortunately, the manager had his own room. That was uh, that was good. You know, it's not an easy league. However, at 7 o'clock every night, the lights come on, and you have a chance to show what you can do on the ball field and hopefully move up. That's true. Now, I guess if you're in prison, say you're in prison, and there's a 1,000 inmates in the prison, and you hear a story that, you know, seven years ago, some guy escaped and they never caught him. 
that gives you hope. In the Pecos League, five guys have made it to the major leagues out of the Pecos League in the 10-year history of the league. So that gives these guys hope. Now, they're light years away. I mean, it's it's almost impossible, but it's not impossible. Yeah. Well, a guy named Eric Yardley pitched very well for the Brewers this year. He's a Pecos League graduate. Wow, okay. He spent two years in the Pecos League. Okay, there you go. I thought that when the book arrived, there would be some great bus stories. It looks like the league <laughs> operates on a shoestring, and I was a little disappointed to find out that the players drive themselves around the American Southwest to play in the league. How is the Pecos League ever able to keep the doors open under such challenging conditions? I mean, the attendance is low sometimes. Franchises yeah, the are attendance can be low. There are some places that draw very well, like Alpine, Texas draws very well. Uh, Santa Fe draws very well. And uh, Monterey drew pretty pretty good. Yeah, well, Alpine... But basically... I was going to say, Alpine it has separate ownership, but most of the other teams are owned by the league. Is that right? Yes. There were 12 teams in the league last year. Alpine uh, was one of them, but they are owned by a trust. They've been the Alpine Cowboys for years. They've, they've had a team since like 1947 there. They're owned independently, and the other 11 teams are owned by the commissioner. And he does work on a, on a shoestring budget. I mean, he has to pay for stadium rental, light fees and whatnot. And how do they make money? Well, you know, ticket sales, which sometimes are good, sometimes not. We did okay in Tucson. Concessions, merchandise, he, he does really well with merchandise because some of the hats, and some of the nicknames and jerseys of teams are pretty unique, and he actually does a pretty good business that way to help keep the league afloat. But Andrew Dunn is the commissioner, and he's an eccentric guy, and he loves baseball, and he loves giving guys a chance you know, to move up. So well, he puts a lot of time and effort in it, and it would be nice if he had more funds, but it is what it is. Yeah, one of the uh, hard luck stories in the book was a writer named Jasper Smitzenhagen. So whatever... <laughs> How is he doing? Do you ever keep track of Jasper? He, he really had a, had a hard luck story in the book. I'm not going to give that away, but how is he doing? Jasper's doing well. I know Jasper very well. I bet you do, and yeah. Jasper's a good guy, and I think uh, his story is pretty funny in the book. It is. That was, that was, I definitely want to ask about that. And just to make sure that he got over, because, I mean, you know, a lot of hard luck stories in baseball, and his was one of them. But, yeah, he had uh, a hard luck story, but uh, in the end, everything worked out. Well, good. You know, you mentioned it might make a return in Santa Fe. You never know. That would know. be awesome. That would be awesome. We'd have to look <laughs> for that. So if you get the book, you'll definitely want to look for Jasper's story because it's a, it's an interesting one. You, you've mentioned in the book of, a couple of times that, you know, and it's kind of true that what separates players as they move up or down in professional ball is as much other than the luck of being healthy is probably more of a mental challenge than the physical challenge because a lot of the players are really talented. But how do they, How do, other than what we talked about in the hope of moving up, how do they stay motivated to play under these conditions night after night? You have to be mentally strong. And that goes for any level of baseball, whether it's Little League all the way up to the Major Leagues because baseball is a game built on failure. And you have to be strong. If you go 0 for 3, you have to be convinced that fourth time up, you're going to get a hit and you may win a ball game. So you can't get down on yourself, and that's a tough thing to do. And one of the things I noticed as the season went along, some guys, maybe their stats weren't good. Um, Maybe they weren't playing as well as they thought they could. And again, a lot of these guys were the star players on their high school and college teams. Now they're playing against guys who are really talented. And to be honest with you, I was impressed with the talent level in the league. It was better than I thought it would be. So as the season went along, I think some of these guys started to realize that the dream is coming to an end. 
I'm not lighting this league on fire. I doubt teams in higher independent leagues are going to come calling for me. I know the major league teams aren't going to come calling for me. I'm hitting 270. I'm striking out too much. And I have weaknesses in the field. And the one thing I know, too, is Pecos League players, there's usually a flaw. There, there's one flaw. A guy may run like the wind. He may hit the heck out of the ball. But maybe he doesn't have a good throwing arm. Uh, maybe another guy does everything well but just isn't fast running. And so there's always a flaw, it seems, for the Pecos League players. And they try to overcome that. As the season went along, I think some guys saw the writing on the wall that this is probably their last and only shot. But I, I admire guys for chasing their dream. Absolutely. You know, it's a no-regrets yeah. league. There are some guys, I, I, when I started to put a team together, I contacted some guys at big-time schools. Now, I was going after Tennessee, Alabama, UCLA, Texas, those guys. They didn't really want to play in the Pecos League. I think they were so spoiled by where they were playing in college that it would be too far of a come down for them. But those guys, maybe in years from now, they'll regret not giving it a shot. There's no shame in flaming out in the Pecos League. You gave it a shot, and when you're 65 years old, you can tell your grandkids, yeah, I played pro ball. I didn't make it to the majors, but I played. I gave it a shot, and there's nothing wrong with that. And when yeah. people die, uh, when they're on their deathbed, I think they, they don't feel bad about the things they did. They feel bad about the things they didn't do. Oh, I wish I would have done that. I wish I would have done this. Well, if you play in the Pecos League and your goal is the major leagues and you flame out in the Pecos League, you gave it a shot, yeah. you have no regrets. I, I it's the guy who says, I'm, I'm too good for the Pecos League. You know, that guy's 50 years old. He's going to be saying, man, maybe played. I should have. Yeah. Exactly. I remember when I, when I lived in San Antonio, I used to go to the double A games and man, those guys were good. I mean, that's yeah, double A. Yeah, it's the speed of the game. Yeah, a lot of them would never make it to the major leagues, but it was really good baseball. You know, it's funny. I find it very amusing when you go to a major league game. Sometimes you'll hear a fan in the stands say, oh, that guy's terrible. He stinks. Yeah. The worst guy in the major league is an unbelievable freaking player. Yeah, exactly. People have no yeah. idea how good major league players are. Yeah, and, and that's absolutely right. Guys that make it to A ball or double A ball are some of the best ball players, but, you know, it's just incredibly difficult to make it all the way. I went to a game actually in Colorado Springs years ago triple-a game and a lot of the players in triple-a of course have played in the majors a little bit and uh yeah and it's like as close as you can get to major league baseball i mean the players are are extremely talented i've heard scouts say that the difference between triple-a and major leagues is not physical talent it's consistency the guy in triple-a can hit a ball 425 feet but he can't do it consistently at the major league level you know the pitcher at Triple A. He may be a pretty good pitcher at Triple A, but he doesn't throw strikes consistently enough to stay in the major leagues. Yeah, so baseball, they, you know, gotta yeah. be consistent. What do they call those pitchers that are up and down? They call them quadruple A pitchers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> <Four> A. <laughs> I guess, yeah. Been, I'll take him in the Pecos League. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you have an interesting uh, bit in your book because one of the players on your on your team was Jane Seymour's son. Yes. And you had a Jane, and you, and you had a Jane Seymour night. I think that was your brainchild, if I remember right. And she came to a yeah. game and threw out a first pitch. So you got to meet Jane Seymour, which is pretty. Impressive. Yes, I did. It, it was funny because uh, we got this kid, uh, Keith, Chris Keach is his name, and we got him. He pitched in uh, college, like Division Two in in Los Angeles area. We signed him. I had no idea who he was, but JD, uh, my player personnel guy, said he's got a lively arm. So he did. He was doing well for us. He was inconsistent. You know, one night he would strike out, you know, five out of the eight batters he faced. The next night he'd walk five of the eight batters he faced. 
but he, he was a really good kid. Had a, like I said, a lively arm. He ended up the the year thirty seven innings pitched, fifty eight strikeouts. So wow. he can throw the yeah. ball. And before a game, one of the bullpen guys called me over and said, "Hey, Skip, yeah, yeah, you know who keeps his He's real quiet about it. They're all like huddled around and like there's a big secret. I'm like, no, who's his mom? And he goes, Jane Seymour. I go, the actress, you know, like Dr. Quinn. And they're like, yeah. I said, you're kidding me. And they showed me a picture on the phone of, of Chris with his mom. So I went down to the dugout where Chris was writing in the lineups. He's one of the few guys I trusted to keep score. I say, hey, Chris, is your mom Jane Seymour? And he smiled. He goes, yeah, how'd you know? I told him the bullpen guys found out. One of the bullpen guys, his mom was on a celebrity website and said, don't you have a guy named Chris Keach on your team? Well, I think his mom is Jane Seymour. So I said to Chris, you think she'll be interested? Is she going to come to a game? Yeah, she'll be here August or uh, July 16th. And I said, do you think she'll throw out the first pitch? He goes, yeah, she'll be into that. And so they promoted that. We had a really big crowd and Jane Seymour night came and she threw out the first pitch. And then she did a couple of pirouettes after she threw out the first pitch. And I was, I was laughing. I said, I've never seen anybody do that before. And she said, I used to be a dancer in her uh, accent. And I tell you, she's six, she was 68 yet last year. She just turned 69. I saw it on, uh, on the news. Still very attractive lady. I mean, just a, super nice. And I know how nice she was with the fans because that night I got thrown out of a game, my only ejection of the year. So after I showered up, I sat in the stands and I was watching her with the fans. There were fans coming up to her all night long, taking pictures, getting autographs. And she was smiling, having a good time, talking to them. Super gracious. Now, I think a lot of celebrities might be like, hey, you know, let me watch my kid. Let me watch the game. Exactly. I'll sign autographs for an inning, but then, you know, I don't want to be bothered by it. But uh, she was great. I always enjoyed her work. She was a Bond girl in Live and Let Die. Right. She, She was solitaire in that. Well, that, that was a nice perk I, for you. Yeah, but I got my picture taken with her and her son after go. the first yeah. pitch, and yeah. my eyes were closed. Oh no! Well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that was that was a bummer. Well, listen, kind of funny though. Yeah, that is a great story and a great, great, uh, great, great thing that uh, that she came and did that. I t- speaks well of her that she did that and met with the fans. So I was already a fan of Jane Seymour. So. Yeah, I was already already <laughs> a fan as well, and. I tell you, I I have nothing bad to say about her. What a terrific lady. You wrote a book in 2014 called Still Pitching, Baseball, Dark Days, and Salvation. And it's being made, it was going to be, it was on track to be made into a motion picture. And uh, the coronavirus kind of delayed it. What's the status of that project? And I think you were also going to write an update. Is that right? Yeah, I have written the update and it's going to be on Amazon soon. Okay, Um, good. I'm not sure exactly when in conjunction with the movie. We're talking, the movie's been shot. It's done. It's in the editing stages and whatever they do post-production. You know, sound effects, music, whatever the, sure. uh, yeah. the movie guy does. It's a guy named Bill Ron, and he's uh, in Georgia. He's a he's director. just south of, yeah, he's the director and the producer, and he liked the story. And in a nutshell, the story is basically a guy I met playing in adult baseball. Uh, he's 10 years older than me, and he's still pitching, hence the title of the book, Still Pitching. He's in his 60s, right? And he's 68 now. 68, okay. Yeah, his name is Rick Fisher. I had seen him playing on the other teams, you know, and then one year he joined our team, and I realized he was kind of a character, a happy-go-lucky type. And uh, my publisher was saying, what are you going to write next? What are you going to write next? Uh, so I, I approached Rick, and I said, hey, Rick, you know, how about we do a book? You know, some of the funny stories in your life in baseball and – I thought 
a guy his age still pitching, still pitching well would make kind of a love of the game type book. And he's like, ah, oh, no, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. And so I brought it up to him again a couple of weeks later. Ah, oh, no, I don't want to do it. And the third time I brought it up is, why are you so apprehensive every time I bring this up? He goes, there's a lot of things you, I don't want you to know about me. I said, such as. And he goes, well, I'll tell you. And he laid it on the line. And I was like, holy moly, this could be a really good book. And he didn't want to. Basically, he went to Vietnam. He didn't get along with his dad. He got hooked on drugs in Vietnam and alcohol. And for 30 years, he was a drug addict. All he, he lived for was to get high. And basically, the only thing that kept him normal was baseball, which he had been playing since the age of six. And he went to a pastor. After, he tried to kill himself five times, married and divorced five times. And finally, one of his buddies said, you got to go see this pastor. There's no getting around it now. you got to do this. And so he finally went. And he's talking to the pastor. And he's like just letting it out, screaming, yelling at the pastor. And after an hour or so, the pastor said, I can't help you, but I know who can. And they started praying. And Rick says like a light switch goes on and off. He felt evil spirits exiting his body. And he felt the Lord entering his body. Total transformation. He said like that. When he walked out of that church that day in 2001, since then, he has never had a desire to drink, and he hasn't. Never had a desire to do drugs, and he hasn't. Never had a desire or thought to kill himself, again. And it's been an unbelievable transformation like that. Bill Ron, a filmmaker in Georgia, got hold of the story. He got the book somewhere, and he thought it would make a good movie. So he contacted me one day, and we talked about it. And you know, a few years later, sure enough, the, the movie's been made. And now they... They're planning December or January to release it. They're going to have the premiere here in Denver, uh, where Rick is from. And so it's just an amazing story. And if you met him now, uh, Craig, you'd say, wow, what a great guy. What a terrific guy. And and he is. If I would have met him beforehand, like when he was in his drugging days, I wouldn't have anything to do with the guy. Yeah. He he said it's that, yeah, like night and day. So when people... You know, some people don't believe in, in God or Jesus, and that's fine. But for Rick, he believes, he's a believer, and it's worked for him. Yeah. And he, he, he'll, he'll tell anybody, you know, it's, it's a miracle what happened to him. Well, that, that book and is called— baseball's been the constant, so yeah. there you go. That book is called Still Pitching, Baseball, Dark Days, and Salvation. The update is coming out. It'll be available on Amazon. Check out uh, Bill Rogan's page, the movie. Uh, look for that as well. And, and uh, Bill Ron has a Facebook page. If you type in Bill Ron, R A H N, right? Yeah, R A H N. And then, and he does uh, faith-based movies, so that's why he he was captivated yeah. by this story. Sure. And then the book we've been talking about is the new book from Bill Rogan, "Life Ain't the Same in the Pecos League." It's a fascinating read about the independent baseball. It's a rookie manager navigates baseball's most notorious independent league. Really interesting stories, colorful characters. Recommended. Bill, we appreciate you being on Hooks and Runs. Yeah, thanks, Bill. That was fun, man. Absolutely. Yeah, I appreciate it, Craig and Eric. It was it was fun, and I'm glad you liked the book, and I appreciate the time. Thank you. 
So that was uh, Bill Rogan. We appreciate Bill being on the show. The book again, Life Ain't the Same in the Pecos League. A rookie manager navigates baseball's most notorious independent league. And I would imagine, Eric, that Bill has more stories than anyone has time. I think he has the most stories of anybody in baseball. And I didn't think I would find somebody who loved baseball more than I did. But there is a person I'm pretty sure we found him, yeah. We alluded to this last week. Eight or nine days ago, Jeff Lunau did an exclusive interview on KPRC, the local NBC affiliate in Houston, an interview with one of their sports reporters. And that has now become kind of the rage. A lot of pushback on the interview because Lunau takes the position and he took the position during the investigation that he didn't know about the sign stealing, but there's a lot of piling on here. Yeah, it's now it's all of a sudden, once again, it's being brought up. It's just like this are literally the very first podcast we did was about the sign stealing scandal. I mean, it's, yeah, it's been kind of the, 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 the thing uh, all year. And then you think it's over, right? Right. Like they've been punished. They have one more round of punishment to go through with the draft picks next year. Right. We can't help that the coronavirus happened. I'm sure the punishment would have been much worse. Is it's not going to be over because there still has to be fans in the stands. It's, it's just a mess that I think all Astros fans just want to be over and move on. The majority of the players on the 2017 team aren't even around anymore. They've been traded or signed or retired or, or moved on. There's right. only the, a few players left from that team. The 2021 Astros will be, for the most part, a completely different team on the field. Yeah. They're going to be getting booed. Like yeah. Kyle, Kyle Tucker's going to be getting booed. Unless the fans single out Alex Bregman and Jose Altuve and Yuli Gurriel, Those are Carlos, the, just like the infield. Yeah, the you know? infield is about all that will be left next year because Reddick will probably be gone. Obviously, none of the pitchers are on the yeah. staff anymore. Exactly. The interesting thing is how Major League Baseball has kind of created this ridiculous WWE environment around the Astros. It really has. Because if you go back to January, there was a lot of reporting – as the Astros story was, as the Astros uh, MLB report was coming out about how there were so many other teams that were implicated in the investigation. Yes. But MLB made a decision that it was going to be an Astro thing. And if you listen to the Ben Ryder podcast at the end of episode four, you hear that. So Craig Calcaterra, just to go back January 15th, yes, more teams than the Astros and Red Sox stole signs, but that doesn't excuse them. He writes, let's be 100% clear about something. The Astros and the Red Sox were not, not by a long shot, the only teams stealing signs. Teams that are implicated included the Diamondbacks, the Indians, the Rangers, the Cubs, the Blue Jays, the Nationals, the Brewers. We know the Yankees were implicated. They're fighting a federal lawsuit to keep evidence from coming out about their involvement. I have secondhand knowledge the Dodgers. The Dodgers, yeah, the Dodgers have been implicated. There were a lot of these, what he calls, sign-stealing shenanigans going on in 16, 17, and 18. Yeah. And yet, you get an Astro report, and they're punished, and they should have been. But MLB has created an environment where it's like only the Astros yeah, were so we're, at fault. And we're just going to make that the narrative forever yeah. until that's all it is. And they we're just going to bury the other teams like it didn't occur. And the interesting thing also is, of course, after the Mike Fire story came out in The Athletic, not The Atlantic, mm-hmm. but The Athletic, and the then later the same writers for The Athletic, Ken Rosenthal and Evan, Evan Drellich, right, Evan Drellich, wrote a story about the Red Sox being second-time offenders after they were caught and punished in 17. They continued with illegal activity on science ceiling. Tom Ferducci writing, and then this, this goes back to the clip we had at the beginning of the show, Tom Verducci of Sports Illustrated wrote, 
that it was the intent, it was Rob Manfred's intent to keep the incident private. He hoped it would be handled, he wanted to handle the Red Sox privately while he was publicly pillaring the Astros. Yeah, he didn't want another steroid scandal yeah. to happen. So I think in an effort to kind of, you know, I've, I've said before on the podcast that the Astros' biggest crime in 2017 was beating the Yankees, Dodgers, and Red Sox. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, the Astros are not supposed to do that. They're not. They're not the legacy program like, right. the, like, the, like those programs. But I, I don't, I'm not too sure if this was just really bad planning by MLB. Yeah, they completely mishandled this whole thing. And because I'm, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. It's not going to happen this year or next year. Years down the road, the full truth will come out. It'll come out. If, assuming we get fans back in the stands in, in big numbers, assuming we can do that in, right. by April, you're really going to have around the Astros this r- unprecedented circus-like atmosphere. You are. Mm-hmm. That is so totally against what baseball normally would be about. And it's going to bring out people that aren't really baseball fans, but mm-hmm. people who like to make a make a scene. So, you know, they're not really coming to watch a baseball game will be part of the baseball season. They're coming out to relive the 2017 issue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The athletic reporters, Ken Rosenthal and Evan Drellick, were back on the scene on, the, on their story in, uh, on Twitter. And Eric, you... Somehow triggered Ken triggered, Rosenthal. Triggered Ken Rosenthal. I just so I've been listening to uh, Ben Ryder's podcast, The Edge, Houston Astros. It's highly recommended. And for some reason, Evan Drellich once again was back on the scene posting. Gosh, there's been a lot of replies to this on Twitter. I'm trying to get down to the to the bottom of it. What they did is start bringing. They're bringing it up again, and I'm, I'm trying to find the. Uh, the original conversation. Okay, so Evan Drellich post, uh, the best interpretation of the evidence is that Luno either knew exactly what the video room was doing or knew generally what they were doing and willfully chose to keep himself in the dark. And I guess when I read that, I'm, I'm getting tired of hearing unnamed sources or that person told me, but I'm not going to tell you who that person is. My response was just, it's over, move on, and I put in quotations, report about something else. Newsflash, the Astros are going to be good again next year or two, and there's nothing you, Ken, or the MLB are going to do about it. And boom, right away, I was like, I couldn't believe how fast I got a response. I, I had to, like, double-check, is that the real Ken Rosenthal? He says, guess what, in quotations, Ichabod, we're not going to start doing our jobs. And I was like, excuse me, job to spread rumors and gossip? Man, I really feel bad for you and Evan that your one goal in life is to hate the Astros. And he responds, MLB evidently view our initial story as rumor and gossip. See you, Ichabod. You, I have no idea why he responded. Yeah, um, that's a little unusual. Normally um, they post their news and move on. Evan Gaddis follows me on Twitter and I follow him, so maybe the algorithm picked that up. I have no idea. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing about the Luna interview and how this has kind of prompted the East Coast and West Coast media to go back on the Jeff Lunau case is if you look at the January 13th Houston Astros report from – Commissioner Rob Manfred. He writes, irrespective of Lunau's knowledge of his club's violations of the rules, I will hold him personally accountable for the conduct of his club. It's the job of the general manager to be aware of the activities of his staff and players and to ensure that those activities comport with both standards of conduct set by club ownership and MLB rules. So when it's the Astros, the general manager is responsible. Regardless right. of what he knew or didn't know or whether he should have known, irrespective of his knowledge, Manfred writes, 
He goes on to write that had Lunau taken some steps in September of 17 when the memo came out after the Red Sox were caught the first time, it's clear to me that the Astros would have ceased both sign-stealing schemes at that time. Now we move on to the delayed Red Sox report that Manfred wanted to keep private, but he uh, he was kind of that was kind of outed by the Athletic. He took a different tact. He said, "I find that the Red Sox front office consistently communicated MLB sign stealing signs rules to the to the staff and made commendable efforts toward instilling a culture of compliance." Well, what happened to irrespective of the knowledge of the general manager? I know, yeah, that doesn't count when it's the Red Sox. I've kind of stopped calling it a cover up because. A cover-up is not normally in such plain sight. Yeah, exactly. This is a full-on attack. Yeah. You know, I, it's hard to say. Obviously, the Astros, if you're if they're going to go after somebody, the Astros are an easy target. They won the World Series. They're also not big media draws. You're not hurting your ESPN money by hurting the Astros. Right. I really, I really kind of think at this point, Major League Baseball would like to find out how can we fix the problem we created. Well, you can't now because now... One of of the problems is even if you go to the players of these other teams and say, we're going to do more of a full investigation and come up with more comprehensive rules, which is what they should have done when it was first outed in 17, rather than piecemeal it and and take it from an overall global league-wide perspective. Right. It's kind of hard to do that now because knowing what the Astros are facing, how do you get teams that aren't on the Dodgers, Red Sox, or Yankees to talk? Well, the players will. The, the talk amongst themselves, but... but uh, Yeah, the, and something's going to come out. In my opinion, that's what I think. Uh, there will be a... So it's a death by a thousand <clears throat> cuts for baseball. Yeah. Instead there, of cleaning it up right There the will first be time. a former player come out who's looking to make a buck and will write a tell-all memoir or a book or something, and that's, gonna, and that's going to start it all over again. Right. And he's going to make a lot of money from his book. Do you know? Yeah. I, I'm not making this up. I don't know who that's going to be. The players talk amongst themselves. Uh, when that culture of cheating was going on, everyone knew about it. Right. But it is, I mean, the players knew the Astros were stealing signs. They just didn't say anything about it. They said, when we play the Astros, we better tighten up and do this. Right. Uh, you got to realize. Some of those teams were, had their own mechanisms. Yeah. To try to steal signs. I mean, there's eight. there were at least eight teams implicated in the initial Astro report. It all got pushed aside. And the Astros were made the uh, sole. Yes, wrongdoers. I don't think Rob Manfred had any inkling of wanting to pursue that any further because yeah. he had his vitriol. Now he had like his hate. He had his team. He had fires. Right. And he was going to do this story, and they didn't like the Astros anyway. Right. And uh, Lunau's not of the of from baseball. Not at all. So he's not one of he's them. From, he's he's not like, one of he's them. from clothing. Yeah, he's from the clothing industry. Right. He's not one of them. He was a little bit too good at his job, probably, yeah, for some of uh-huh. the baseball he was. purists to yep. appreciate. And so that was an easy target. I don't think – but I, I kind of feel like now they didn't really anticipate that the hatred and the circus-like atmosphere that has been created around the Astros would happen or is really good for baseball. Yeah, uh, it's not good for baseball. It's, it's just they need to – and here's the problem. That's all they're going to have this offseason – there's not going to be any big free agent signings. Yeah. It's going to be an extremely slow offseason because we don't know what's going to happen next year. And these reporters report by getting info that they only know. Breaking news, so-and-so signs with someone. They're the first to report it. They're going to be – this is going to be the everything that we read this offseason is going to be something from this. Yeah. 
and it's just like it's never going to go away. Yeah, because you have so many people probably that are not really longtime baseball fans that are coming in just to churn the emotional right, rigor right. of this mm-hmm. story. You're going to have writers continually, you know, pulling at the thread. They're getting clicks. Yeah, they're getting clicks, and it's uh, easy clickbait for people that aren't really going to be right interested in baseball as a 162-game season and exactly. the whole bit. They're mm-hmm. just going to be in it for the emotional uh, bump. That yeah. they get the endorphin rush of uh-huh. uh, hating on some to something or somebody. Yep, and that's going to be coming to the ballparks. It's going to be some ugly scenes. Yeah, it, it is because I wonder how many um, imposters are going to put on Astros jerseys and then start throwing beer on the field. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, there's and, all kinds of things. I mean, once you get, I mean, once you get wrestling, pro wrestling, right. mm-hmm. you know, heel and and that kind of crowd involved, it's a, it's a different situation. Yeah, you're going to be throwing beer at Kyle Tucker, who wasn't even on the team. So Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. you know what I mean? It's yeah, just, the whole pitching staff is was not on the team right. at this point. Made so. famous by this season. So. Yeah. Uh, in any event, a few words on the World Series. It's been a good one. Oh, yeah, it definitely has. It was uh, a, a quick side note. I got to watch the game with Evan Gaddis yesterday at his house, uh, watching game five. Uh, me and my roommate went up there. We had to go get our cardboard cutouts from Minute Maid this morning. Yeah, it's right here beside yeah, me. I'm I know, right? I've got two yeah. Eric's. I've got two Eric's in the room. One to my left in the Astro jersey, yeah. and you here live. And then, um, so we stayed the night and watched uh, Game Five. And I was like, Evan, where were you when Bregman hit that walk off? Because I don't ever remember seeing you anywhere. He was like, Oh, Hinch told me to go up to his office to get the player cards for the new catcher that was about to come into the game, you know, to for their signs of when they're, you know, yeah. all players carry cards in their back pocket for batters and stuff. And I was like, you were literally in A.J. Hinch's office when that happened? He was like, yeah, that's where I was. It's like, yeah. wow. It's amazing you remember that. Yeah. yeah. So. It's amazing you remember that. So, well, anyway, I think we're going to have probably in the off season a lot to say about the science ceiling because they're going to keep reporting on it and we're going to keep. New news will come yeah. out. Yeah. Anyway, this is Hooks and Runs, a podcast about baseball, music, and culture. We want to thank Bill Rogan again for being on the show. Yes, thanks, Bill. And uh, that was a lot of fun. We'll be back next week with another episode. Episodes drop every Tuesday. Check us out anywhere you listen to podcasts. We'd appreciate your likes, and we'd appreciate your comments and your subscription to Hooks and Runs. We'll see you next week.